0: Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics, Part 1, Comics Life in Moments. Hello and welcome to the first part of the podcast mini-series, 80 Years of DC Comics, presented by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. and the purpose of these 12 episodes is to showcase comic books and comic book genres that DC Comics has produced in its 80-year history, but are not as recognizable or celebrated as their superheroes or stories that is what usually winds up on a top 10 list. Now, I'm going to cheat a little right off the bat and tell you that this is one of two episodes of the series that will be superhero heavy, even though I said that this, ep- this series really isn't focused on superheroes, and that's mainly because I don't think that it's possible to talk about DC Comics and not talk about superheroes, especially since the company owes its longevity to a character that came about in 1938, and that's Superman. He jump-started the superhero genre and recently celebrated his own 76th anniversary, but what I'm going to do, instead of um, what you would normally see on your usual listicle-based podcast or article, is I'm not going to go down a list of important moments in DC Comics history or the top 20 DC Comics stories of all time, nor am I going to actually do an entire episode outlining the history of the company. Those are things I think you can get from multiple sources, many of which are much better and more well-researched than this one anyway, or in ways that are less self-deprecating, it's well-worn territory, we don't need to go there for this podcast. What I want to do, though, is start this series of about 12 episodes of my podcast— by getting personal, explaining why I've put this series together, why I'm a DC Comics fan, and highlighting some of my favorite moments in comics that I've read over the past 25 years that I've been reading DC Comics. And I'll do that after this.
1: Hi folks, Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here and we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaiken pen, Guy Gardner, Collateral Damage. No, because that book was utter sh**. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring-wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming an nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's Warrior Face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, 1001 Emerald Knights, the Black Circle-Green Arrow crossover, and so much more. Which would easily make up for not covering collateral damage. <sighs> also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to 2 True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed... No, they just streamlined it, so the Two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure I'm it's sure not it's because Scott, Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern, Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, no. In fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's Come check out Just One of the Guys over at 2TrueFreaks.com and subscribe on iTunes at 2 freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back.
0: So, I don't want to make this entire show my comic book origin story because, on the one hand, I've told that story here and there over the years, and on the other hand, I'm actually saving that for another day. But I will say that my first foray to comics was back in 1987 1988. That was actually in the Marvel camp because I was reading G.I. Joe and Transformers. But I did have a few Superman comics in my very small collection. Relevant to this episode, <clears throat> the part of the story of my comics origin story starts in June of 89 when I went to the comic book store having uh, not been there for the better part of a year and saw Batman number 436 on the stand and that was the first part of Batman year 3 so I went and I picked up Aliens number 5 and then a couple of weeks later on June 23rd 1989 my friends and I went to the movies for my 12th birthday and saw Star Trek 5 the Aliens purchase is not a regrettable one. I have the first three Dark Horse Alien series in their original unaltered form-and-trade paperback, and they're all great, especially that first one. Star Trek V... I feel like I need to see a priest or something because of that one. Anyway, perhaps I wasn't ready to get back into comics, or perhaps I was still more focused on things like Aliens and Star Trek, which were my two big things back in 89 or so. But almost exactly a year later, my friend Harris started collecting Batman comics. When I was over at his house, because his mom was my piano teacher, I I ended up reading the three-part Return of the Joker storyline that ran through Batman 450, Detective Comics 617, and Batman 451. I then headed to the comic store and bought the next issue of Detective, because he said, and Bob, the comic book shop owner, confirmed, that was going to be the next big story involving Tim Drake, the new Robin. Taking a look at June nineteen ninety and Mike's amazing world of DC Comics, I can probably tell you what I bought that month. Aliens vs. Predator number one, Aliens Earth War number one, Detective six seven six eighteen, Detective Six Nineteen, Punisher War Journal twenty one, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number thirty-three. What I missed this month that was big then? Jim Lee on X Men, Rob Liefeld on New Mutants, the first issue of Todd McFarlane's adjective Spider Man t- adjectiveless Spider Man title, the first issue of the Who's Who binder edition, Neil Gaiman on Sandman and Miracle Man. But I was diving into Batman and DC and not Marvel, and since then, well, I've read some Marvel titles here and there, but I've I've Really, always been fully committed to DC, and it all started with Batman, and moved into a long-standing love of the Teen Titans, and even a brief career as a letter hack in the early to mid 1990s. I consistently collected Detective Comics until about 2002, and read the Titans all the way up until the New Fifty Two. I also, for at least most of the 1990s, had a love for summer crossover events. I think that's because. When I started collecting comics, my neighbor gave me a few of his old books, and among them was Crisis Number Twelve. And I went—I read that thing over and over and over again. I went crazy buying all the back issues, and I even have the hardcover from 1998. My copy signed by George Perez, which is which is awesome. And uh, one day, one day, I swear I will meet Marv Wolfman. <laughs> so yeah. I went and bought the back issues of Legends, Millennium, and Invasion, I bought all of them again in 2001, I bought War of the Gods, I bought Eclipse of the Darkness Within, I bought Bloodlines, and I went crazy on Zero Hour and Final Night, and I think, I remember missing Underworld Unleashed for some reason, and I had the mini-series of Genesis, but I don't think I actually read it, and if I did, I didn't like it, and... But all of those events have given me a real love of the DC Universe as a whole for many years, even if there have been times when I've been less involved than others because I didn't have the money to buy the books that I wanted or the desire to buy a lot of these books. I've been hot and cold for the last few years on DC. I wasn't too hyped about the New 52 when it started, but there have been some great stories that I've read. Batman Zero Year, the bride and run on Wonder Woman, the first two years of Batwoman, Earth 2, World's Finest. I've actually been enjoying most of Future's End, even though parts of it have been quite slow. But that's what... 25 years of history that I've been dealing with with DC, and and that company's been around for 80, you might be sitting yourself here, okay, you're dedicating 12 episodes of a podcast to the history of DC Comics. What qualifies you to talk about the history of DC Comics? Nothing, absolutely nothing. I just wanted to do a podcast. All right, that's not entirely true. One of the first trade paperbacks I ever owned, and, and still own, by the way, is the greatest Batman stories ever told. I talked about this with Michael Bailey over on Bailey's Batman podcast a couple of years ago. And what it what it means is that I really started my comics collecting by reading old golden and silver age Batman stories. In fact, the two stories I remember reading over and over and over again were The Origin of Batman and The First Batman, which added to the origin, as well as Robin Dies at Dawn and a number of other much older stories. Plus, I was checking out the book Tales of the Dark Knight, Batman's First 50 Years, from my public library whenever I could get my hands on it. Granted, that was just Batman, but it was a start, and I've always loved comics history. So... That's why I decided to do this miniseries, and it kind of brings us to the main part of the episode as well. As I mentioned briefly in the first pop culture affidavit episode of this year, I wanted to do something where I look at the types of comics DC put out over the course of its 80 years. Mostly ones that are not based on superheroes. You know, horror, war, funny animals, western, action adventure, sword and sorcery, random licensed properties, that sort of stuff. For each of episodes 2 through 11, I'll be looking at one of those genres, then coming back to superheroes for my finale in December. This first time around, though, I'm going to take a look at 10 moments that I've always loved. None of them are particularly, quote, great moments in DC history. And I think that all of them have happened in my lifetime, so I want to apologize at least on the outset of this for not being comprehensive, for not taking the whole 80 years and looking at ten great moments and just kind of being a little insular and combining it to my lifetime and my comics collecting career. And to books that I've only read. So so there's a lot of moments on this that don't make best of countdowns very often. There's no death of Jason Todd. There's no crippling of Barbara Gordon. There's no I did it 35 minutes ago. There's no Superman telling Mongol to burn or the death of Barry Allen. They're all interesting. They're all noteworthy. Some of them, most of them, are even great moments, to be honest with you. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to get a little bit off the beaten path. I wanted to pick things that have always resonated with me personally. And that does make this book very Bat Books heavy. It makes it very Titans heavy. And, well, that's because it's been the main focus of my comics collecting career. I'm going to go in chronological order, and I'm going to start with the opening to Detective Comics number 475 from February of 1978. i first read this in the greatest joker stories ever told and i was so happy when i got the whole storyline in the strange apparitions trade because for years what i would do is i would read the parts that i had in the greatest batman stories ever told volume two which was the melee penguin from detective 473 the greatest batman stories ever told which had the deadshot ricochet from text 474 and the greatest joker stories ever told which had the issue the this issue which was the Laughing Fish, and then Tech seventy six four seventy six, which was signed of the Joker. But the moment I am talking about, despite the Joker's in this issue and as is the villain of this issue, doesn't have the Joker. It's the very, very beginning of Detective four seventy five, where Batman confronts Silver Saint Cloud, who is the main squeeze of Bruce Wayne at the moment. Because in the previous issue, she had seen him fight Deadshot and called out to him. What we know. And what he discovers, but does not reveal to her over the course of what is a three-page conversation, is that she knows that Batman is Bruce Wayne. And I'm not sure what exactly drew me to this while I was younger, because it was—I mean, it was probably Marshall Rogers' art, and maybe more specifically, have been the way he drew silver St. Cla- Cloud wearing nothing but a towel. When you really look at it, what makes the Steve Englehart Marshall Rogers run on Detective Comics so special? is the way that they seamlessly weave the Bruce Wayne Silver State Cloud subplot through the comics. This is one of the best examples of it. It's a conversation that's not a confrontation, per se. It's definitely tense. As Batman notices Silver's hand is shaking almost the entire time, and we get a lot of great thought bubbles where Bruce just knows just about everything that's going on, but he's so conflicted about letting on what he knows, and likewise, so is Silver, who has to be one of the best love interests that batman has ever had at 12 and 13 it showed me that there was a lot more depth to batman and comic books in general we moved from 1978 to 1984 and my favorite single issue of a comic ever the new teen titans number 38 who is donna troy i don't need to say much about this or at least what the story is about so i'll just get to the moment in question which is on page 17. After finding Dom, Donna's former caretaker, Elmira Cassidy, in a Florida nursing home, the elderly woman tells them about Donna's very sick mother, Dorothy Hinckley, giving Donna up for adoption and Donna being taken in by the Stacys, which leads her to conclude that they were the people who died in the fire where Wonder Woman found her. Remember, this is pre-crisis. And I'm not going to ask you to make sense of Donna Troy's origin post-crisis, because trust me, I can barely keep track of it. So they head to Virginia. And this is presumably so Donna can check out the house where Stacy's once lived. She drives down the street and she pulls up to a house where a family is raking leaves, as you do. She gets out of the car and she recognizes the woman who was her adopted mother. Faye, the woman, recognizes Donna and they have a tearful reunion. There's something in my eye you'll have to excuse me. It's a moment that could only be handled by a writer and an artist at the top of their game. And fortunately, those people are Marv Wolfman and George Perez. They pace it well. Perez's artwork is gorgeous. I mean, they do their best to rein in the melodrama that this very well could be. Plus, this whole story is not only a reminder of how human our superheroes could be, but it's also a reminder how the, of how young these characters were. Donna Troy is only 19 years old or so when the story takes place. And when she's in the uniform as Wonder Girl, you don't always remember that. Here with her hair up, wearing a turtleneck and jeans, and holding a doll that she had when she was two, she looks like a kid. Both writer and artist knocked this one out of the park. And if you need any reminder of why this series was so special, it's this. Up next is another Wolfman Paris moment, but this one's not a Titans moment. It's from Crisis on Infinite Earths number 5. And for all of the incredibly epic moments that are in this series, many of which could be really qualify for a list like this, this one has always stuck out to me. It's four panels on the top of page 18. And they read this. While on Earth 2, the confusion continues. Meet David and Phyllis Gerald of Chicago. This is an old couple. And they're on the street. And Phyllis is saying, You've got to see her, David, or you'll think I'm insane. And David says, But it can't be our Michelle. She died years ago. And we both see both of their faces. Oh, God. Oh, my Lord God. It is Dave, her, David. Look, it's Michelle. But the way she looked when she died. What's happening to us, David? For God's sake tell me for david and phyllis gerald there can be no simple answer for what they see is not their daughter but her earth one counterpart i've read crisis more times than i can count i love 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 it in fact i am waiting for bated breath for scott and mike to cover it over in tales of jsa the promo alone guys the promo has me psyched this moment though i've never forgotten this moment I guess it's because there are just two these are just two ordinary citizens and we get a split second moment of how they are reacting to time and multiple earths and everything else going wonky around them. Yes, there's this rule about time crazy crossover events and how the heroes are really the only people who remember what happens, but it's nice to see the everyday person, if only for a scene or two. Plus Wolfman and Paris, and I believe Jerry Ordway was doing um, the inking by then, and Jerry Ordway was one of the best inkers Perez has ever had. Um, I, they, this team knows they don't need to turn this moment into a scene or a story in itself. They put it there, three panels, four panels. They let it happen, and then they go on. It's a small moment in the story that is so huge. Um, An honorable mention, by the way, goes to Helena Waynes realizing that her father never existed in issue number 11. And her conversation with Dick Grayson in the graveyard um, after the Earth is reformed. I I plan on covering that in brief on Taking Flight, so I won't get too much into it. Just to say that, again, there are moments like this throughout Crisis on Infinite Earths that make this story even more than it, than just sort of blockbuster crossover event. Going from there, we fast forward five years to the very last page of Detective Comics number 620. This is the storyline where Jack and Janet Drake have been kidnapped by the Yobaya man in Haiti, and Batman has gone there to rescue him. This is something I actually did cover on Taking Flight during my first season of that show, and just go back and over to the Batman universe and check those out when you get the chance. While this is going on, Robin, in training, Tim, has successfully tracked down a hacker named Money Spider, whom he figured out was actually anarchy. Most of issue number 620 was about the Money Spider anarchy storyline. But on the very, very last page, Bruce is shown walking down the steps of the Batcave with Alfred. Bruce is wearing pajamas and a bathrobe, and his feet and torso are bandaged, and he says, I... I have bad news. I remember reading this the moment I got home from the comic store that day. Um, in fact, I might have—I might have actually just gone to the library because the library was just right across the right on the other side of a big parking lot from the comic store. But anyway, like the moment I got it, I read this and I got to the last page and I just went, "Holy shit!" and um, called Harris and we talked about how holy shit the moment was, and then and then remember waiting very 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 impatiently for detective 621 to come out uh which was the conclusion of the storyline in fact it took all of my willpower not to turn to the last page of detective 621 when i got it i mean <laughs> i mean i was only a couple of months into my comic collecting career and this is a cliff herring that i got y- you don't get better than this i mean <laughs> i'm pretty sure that this is the high i've been chasing for the last 25 years and if you haven't read this Track it down, it's amazing. It's, it's in the Robin Triumph and Tragedy trade from the 90s or very, very easily found in, in your average 50 cent or quarter bin. Or I believe it's also up on Comixology and I, I would recommend reading it. My next moment moves us into the mid-1990s. It comes from one of my favorite Justice League stories, the Rock of Ages storyline. Now, I'm not a huge Grant Morrison fan, although there are a couple, there's more than one Grant Mar- Morrison moment on this entire countdown. But I'm not a huge Grant Morrison fan. Um, I, I did, however, love his JLA run. Rock of Ages is my, one of my favorite parts of that run. If you're unfamiliar with it, in the middle of the storyline, Aquaman and Green Lantern and the Flash discover that Superman's destroying something called the Philosopher's Stone, which is in the possession of Lex Luthor and not Harry Potter leads to dark side taking over the earth what ensues is a sequence of a horrific future where what heroes are left are doing their best to fight back against our dark side and in a fashion not unlike the final assault on the sentinels the days the future past the heroes go up against the big guy and everyone dies well, not exactly Everyone except Flash, Green Lantern, and Aquaman who make it back in time to prevent the future from happening and Green Arrow and the Atom because Ray Palmer manages to get past Darkseid's defenses and literally attacks his brain and killing him. Darkseid's death is the moment that I wanted to mention because it's about two and a half pages long. Green Arrow, and this is Connor Hawk, by the way, shoots a flashbulb arrow that gives Adam the opportunity to pass through Darkseid's bodily shield, and then Ray just goes to town on Darkseid's gray matter, reducing them to this nonsensical babbling and slurring, kind of in the way that Dave Bowman disconnects HAL 9000 in 2001 A Space Odyssey. And the last two panels of this scene, are they're just exquisite. Darkseid's standing in front of Green Arrow, completely still, and Connor says, Ray, you and me, man, We just killed Darkseid. It's not present as a statement of triumph, but more of a statement of fact, honesty, disbelief, as if the suicide mission, the suicide mission that never is supposed to work, actually did. Because if you expect it to work, it's not a suicide mission, right? The rest of the storyline is great, as is Grant Morrison's JLA run, which is... Yeah, morrison at times, but not as morrison as some other stuff, one series of which actually makes my list later on. And we're about halfway through. <laughs> so I think it's time for a crappy sequel. Well, a moment from a crappy sequel. The Kingdom is the follow-up to the mega-successful Kingdom Come. And... It's nowhere near as good. There are some good parts to it. The concept is pretty solid. It seeds Infinite Crisis in a way that I don't think was intentional back in 1998 or so. But overall, it's it's not very satisfying. One moment, though, that I'll never forget happens in the Planet Krypton tie-in issue. Planet Krypton is basically the planet Hollywood of the DC Universe, and this book is a ghost story. But instead of ghosts, what's haunting the restaurant are basically alternate reality representations of familiar characters. This would later go on to be further explained in the hypertime concept, but here it just seems like they're all phantoms. Booster Gold, who owns the restaurant, calls Batman to investigate the ghosts, and Batman discovers two things. First, a waitress who's more or less been the main character and who has more or less been living in the restaurant. Second, a team of second-generation heroes that has gone back in time and are central to the overall plot of The Kingdom. But before that, Batman is in the Planet Krypton's storeroom and notices, notices that it's filled with Silver and Bronze Age artifacts that... Technically, don't exist in the post-crisis DC universe. He then finds himself surrounded by the phantom versions of the Silver Age Jarell and Earth Two Robin, among others. And then he comes face to face with the apparition of the original Batwoman, Kathy Kane. And in four panels, his face goes from stern to curious to absolutely surprised, and he whispers, "Kathy, for all the missteps in the kingdom." This is one of the times where Mark Wade hit the right note, and Barry Kitson's art accompanies it perfectly. When Batman pauses like that, the audience pauses like that, because it, along with so much else in this moment, is, is one big continuity Easter egg. But it's a nice treat before going on to this larger story once more, which doesn't need deep knowledge of the DCU for you to try to follow. It's too bad the conclusion of all this really did stumble. My next moment is from a book that is one of the few mail-away comics I've ever owned, because it was the one-half issue of the Teen Titans from 2004. It was a promo put out by Wizard Magazine. It's part of Jeff Johns' run on the Teen Titans, which I liked and I didn't like. And it's the story of the origin of the new Ravager, uh, also known as Rose Wilson. Now, Rose Wilson had been around for at least a decade. She was created by Marv Wolfman in back uh, during the Total Chaos storyline back in the New Titans. But since the last Titans series, she really hadn't been seen very much. And here we're re- reintroduced to her as Wade Defarge, her uncle and Deathstroke's half-brother, kills her foster family and is about to take her before the Titans show up. And then Deathstroke shows up, knocks out the Titans, and then takes Rose and the Ravager. The moment I love in this, is where Deathstroke has Wade tied up and hands Rose a gun, saying this is her chance to replace bad memories with good ones. She refuses the gun and says, Give me your sword. I want this to go slow. I almost had a life. Deathstroke promises that he'll have a new life together, and we see the tip of the sword and Wade's panicked face before we get a shot of Slade saying, Good girl. It. It is so great, especially since, believe it or not, for a Jeff Johns comic, there's no blood. And then, next and last page of the story has the Titans figuring out that it's obvious that Deathstroke orchestrated everything in this issue just to get his daughter on his side. A couple years from then, you would have had, like, whatever gory, gory things she did to him. But the fact that she does not, they don't show that, and you just see the tip of the sword and his panic face leaves some stuff to the imagination. It is a good use all around of all of the characters, especially Deathstroke and the Ravager. And Ravager became one of my favorite characters in that Titans book for a while, especially during the times when that series was not so great. Darkseid returns for my next two moments. I'm sorry about that. I just realized, um, and it wasn't on purpose. I was, like I said, when I put this together, I just kind of put together 10 random moments. So, Darkseid, the next two moments do have to do with Darkseid again, and but they're in two different contexts. First, there's JLA Avengers number two. This is one of the big superhero trivia love fests. I mean, there's so much going on. And. And what's going on in this issue is this big contest of champions where the JLA and the Avengers have to race across two Earths to find these artifacts and save their respective planets or whatever. There's a moment during this contest of champions, as it is, where some of the JLA and the Avengers arrive at Apocalypse, and Darkseid is wearing the Infinity Gauntlet. Hawkeye practically craps himself, and then after Darkseid and Asad determine that there's in the glove, but it's not accessible to Darkseid, and therefore it's useless because if it's not useful to Darkseid, it's completely useless. Darkseid just is like, alright, you guys have it. Fight over it, and he tosses it at them. There are moments of humor in this series that are just awesome, and that's one I always come back to. That and Plastic Man reaming Batman about his taking 20 minutes to beat up the Punisher off-panel in issue number one. But then, I take you from humor to horror. <laughs> The final page of Final Crisis number three. Final Crisis and I have a very complex relationship. I was going getting so event fatigued by the time issue number two came out. I was not happy with the direction that any of my books I liked had gone since the end of Infinite Crisis. And so I gave up reading comics altogether for about a year and a half. Believe it or not, it was the podcasts I started listening to that got back, me back in. But yeah, I walked away from it all, and Final Crisis was a big part of that. By the time I saw it in trade, I was already back to buying books on a regular basis, so I decided, well, I'm gonna pick this up to see if it was as rage-inducing as I remember it. It wasn't, not really. I think the Superman Beyond stuff is a little out there. I think the last issue is a little bit weak. But overall, it's enjoyable. And one of my favorite moments comes in in issue number three on that last page. Two pages before, Darkseid's minions had unleashed the anti life equation all over the internet. And then Wally West and Barry Allen show up too late to stop what they were going to stop, or they were trying to stop. And the two heroes stand in the middle of Central City where they are confronted by Darkseid's Furies who are riding giant dogs. But they're not just Furies. They're Batwoman, Giganta, Catwoman, and Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman says, superheroes, kill. It is a crap your pants chilling moment. And well, for the heroes, it does get worse from there until they finally win. But we have to go through Superman Beyond, which I know that some people like when Grant Morrison gets all meta and Morrison-y. But the Monitor's storyline at Mandrak was to me a huge distraction, which was from what was a really great dark side story especially considering he did one thing that everyone forgets to do when they're taking down the justice league he went after batman first (laughs) you know instead of thinking oh he has no powers he's not gonna be too bad and this wonder woman wearing a scary mask and then all four of them looking at them like possessed and obviously just murderous it's it's incredibly incredibly scary Now, finally, in a list that is very Titans, Batman, Darkseid, houses about 80 years of history when he starts in 1978 heavy, I've got a moment that's Titans moment, but it redeems one of the worst characters in the history of DC Comics. The character is Danny Chase. Yes, Cousin Oliver. The moment is in the original New Teen Titans graphic novel Games, which Marv Wolfman and George Perez started sometime around 1989 and finally finished in 2011. The graphic novel itself is gorgeous, and I reviewed it on the blog a few years ago. But the moment I'm talking about comes toward the end. Starfire is badly hurt, Raven's trying to heal her, and Danny is in the UN building trying to defuse a bomb, but he can't do it. Since Starfire is hurt so badly, Raven can't teleport over there and get the bomb without letting Cory die. Cory tells Raven, save them. And as the clock ticks down, Danny tells Dick he has an idea. The bomb explodes. Later on, as Corey is being treated by doctors and Raven is trying to heal Danny, who has lost both of his hands, Danny weakly says that he put up a telekinetic shield just before the bomb exploded. It is a moment that Wolfman and Paris handle with an incredible amount of intensity, putting thirty small panels on the oversized page for each second of the thirty second countdown, and one large panel at the bottom of the page for an explosion. While it is your typical you were always were an asshole, Gorman, crowning moment of awesome, it's just something that I, a longtime fan of the Titans and hater of Danny Chase, really appreciated love from a creative team that a lot of people had wanted to see reunite for years. And this is one of the few times that I felt that the reunion actually worked. Man, they gave us moments like this throughout their run on the Titans. So it's great to see they were able to give us yet one more. And, you know, that's it. This is a quick episode. And um, with the exception of the times that I have guests they're not going to be terribly long. They'll probably be about half to three-quarters of the length of a usual pop culture affidavit episode, but that's okay. It's not an authoritative list either. It's not a conclusive list. But it is a list that's a reminder to me, at least, of why I love comics in general and some of my favorite DC books. You might have your own, and and, and one thing I, I would love for you to do as you're listening to this, is think beyond the moments in DC history that get the top 10 notices, that get the top 20 notices, and think to some of your sentimental favorites, your personal favorites, things that not everybody notices that you notice. Because that, to me, speaks more volumes about a company that's been around for 80 years making comic books than the umpteenth list telling you to read The Dark Knight Returns nothing against The Dark Knight Returns but you know what I mean when I say that so where do I go from here well next month is February so with issue number two of this miniseries you'll get to see my first look at a non-superhero genre which is gonna be romance right now I have a special guest lineup for that and you'll find out who that is when you come back and well be ready for some heartbreak is all I can say Until then, I encourage you to go check out any of the books that I mentioned. Go to your LCS. Go to Comixology. Dig through some old DC stuff. See if you can find moments that you particularly like. Most of these are available digitally. They're available in trades. Some of them you can just probably pick up for a quarter, 50 cents or a dollar in a bin at your local comic shop. Either way, enjoy them. Enjoy 80 years worth of DC Comics And I hope you enjoy this show and the shows to come. I'll see you in a month. Thank you for listening and take care.